0: Well, I don't know if many of you are football fans, but last Sunday we witnessed the greatest Super Bowl in history. What made it so great was the, sorry for the Atlanta fans, was the seemingly impossible comeback by the New England Patriots against the Atlanta Falcons. And it it was a spectacle to watch. It's what makes sports compelling. And in case you're wondering why I'm talking about football at church, humor me and you'll see where I'm going with the illustration. But if you watch the game, the Patriots, they were down 18 points at halftime. 21 to 3. Already that meant they should have lost the game because previously in Super Bowl history, the greatest comeback ever was just 10 points, 10-point deficit. But then the Falcons scored again, making it 28 to 3. And with that touchdown, everyone believed it was over. They were now down 25 points, and the game was two-thirds finished. According to pro football reference, the odds of a comeback at that point were 0.5%. But as you already know, That's entirely or exactly what happened. Through a series of improbable events, the Patriots scored four times in a row, including two must-have two-point conversions to tie the game, making the first overtime in Super Bowl history. And then when the Patriots won the Super Bowl toss, everyone knew it was over. They were going to score and and end the game, and that's what they did. It was a remarkable comeback, and, and for the Patriots, the fact that they overcame such a deficit made for them that the glory all the sweeter. I was watching a post-game interview with some players, and they're asked how they pulled it off, and I found it interesting. Several of them mentioned the training they had. They trained harder than everyone else. They suffered more than everyone else for moments such as, as this. One guy even mentioned how most days he hates football, meaning that they suffer so much in practice, you wonder if it's worth it. But the feeling he had of winning that big game and having his name etched in glory forever made it all worth it. And when I heard him say that, I knew I had my opening illustration for the next sermon. (laughs) Because it really does perfectly illustrate everything we've been talking about. In several places, in fact, the Apostle Paul uses athletic imagery to describe the Christian life. So it, it fits. For indeed, ours is a long road paved with struggle and striving and toil. It might make you wonder if the Christian life is worth it. But if you make it to the end, there comes immeasurable, everlasting joy. And glory to which all prior suffering pales in comparison. And just as the champ would never experience that glory without the necessary road of suffering first, so it is with us who find that the road to heaven is often paved with trials and tribulations. Hence, we are likewise encouraged all over the Bible simply to endure, to make it to the end of our race. In the meantime, we're also told not to be surprised when various trials or suffering comes. That's what Peter says, First Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And Peter knew he had learned from the Lord that if you're going to follow the Lord, suffering will come. Like Jesus himself taught, the darkness hates the light, for it exposes their evil deeds. And if you walk in the light, they will make you pay just like they did to Jesus. He walked in the light first. And so as you follow him, well, at the very least, don't be surprised if you're made to suffer like Jesus did. So Peter understood that suffering comes with the territory for Christians. But he also understood that God has good purposes in it. God is bringing about our testing with the intention not to weaken us or destroy us, but to strengthen us. Do you know how steel is hardened and made stronger? It involves a process of of superheating it. The only way you get tempered steel is through intense fire. And likewise, the only way you get tempered Christians is through intense fire. As God exposes us to the heat of trials and tribulations, and as we endure, he strengthens us to levels we never would have gotten to otherwise. And Peter understood this lesson from the Lord. And so did the Apostle Paul, and this brings us back now to the book of Philippians, where we learn about suffering from the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them now to Philippians chapter 1. You see, the Philippians, they were starting to feel the heat of opposition. These young, new disciples of Christ, they were starting to come into that opposition Jesus talked about for their faith as they lived in a very dark pagan roman world but in light of this paul writes to explain to them the nature and the purpose of their suffering for christ now first he encourages them by his own story he's been made to suffer by opponents as well he was severely beaten and unjustly imprisoned simply for following christ both in philippi and now in rome He's been made to suffer by the darkness as he's walked in the light. However, although this suffering itself is not good, God has good purposes in it. And Paul was able to see some of God's amazing purposes through his trials and sufferings. Paul could even see God's design in allowing him to suffer so much. For through Paul's suffering, God was strengthening Paul. God was encouraging other believers And God was even drawing many sinners to himself. On top of all this, Paul knew that after his brief days of suffering were over, he'd be met with Christ and and eternal glory. And this mountain of a truth made all of his present sufferings a grain of sand by comparison. So here at the end of Philippians 1, Paul now writes to the Philippians to let them know that all applies to them too. They have opponents too. They're being made to suffer for Christ too. But God is still working it out for his glory, for their good in the end. Most people, Christians included, believe suffering is about the worst thing that could ever happen to them. And certainly no one wants it. And although suffering itself is not good, in fact, it's often the result of evil, our God is so sovereign and and powerful and wise. He's able to take what men mean for evil and turn it into good. God did this in the life of Paul. He did it in the life of Jesus, and Paul now writes to the Philippians to let them know he's still working in their lives as well. In fact, we know God is working still today to turn suffering into good. And so we come back to the end of Philippians 1 this morning to continue to learn how God uses suffering for good, and this helps explain the passage we find, which is in a way a peculiar passage. Our text from last week, we're continuing today, Philippians 1 29 and 30. You can read that with me. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It's a pretty meaty verse in Scripture. It makes you wonder, is that verse saying what I think it's saying? And we found it last week. Yeah, it it pretty much is. To you it has been granted, charizomai in the Greek. The word means grace gifted. It speaks of God's gracious free gift to us. So not only does scripture teach that God can use our sufferings for good, this verse is, is saying that God can even intend our sufferings as a gracious gift. I mean, have you heard that before? But it actually takes it even one step further. as verse also says that in the same way God graciously gives us the gift of salvation, he gives us the gift of suffering. I mean, read it. We said it last week. It speaks for itself. To you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, that's been granted, but also to suffer for his sake. So in the same way God graciously bestows his favor upon us, giving us the gift of salvation, this verse says God also sometimes graciously bestows his favor on us, giving us the gift of suffering. It's just what the verse says. Now, it's a shocking truth to some. I mean, suffering as a gift, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. How how can that be? It's been our intention, therefore, to try and explore and digest this truth. You do have to be very careful and precise with a verse like this because young, immature believers can choke on it. It's like you're trying to give solid food to a baby for the first time. you got to take it slow, take it easy, make sure they can digest it all. And so if you got a young believer goes into the hospital with some illness, you don't walk in with this verse and say, hey, actually I want you to know your suffering is actually a gift, so congratulations. It's not how you use the verse per se, but that being said, for the mature, for the discerning, for the understanding, there is a profound truth being revealed in this verse. And when you get it, it leads to a deeper comfort when you suffer. And that's what we've been trying to discover. This would be a good place for me to mention my, one of my seminary professors, Dr. Harris. He was the one who first introduced me to this verse and, and what it teaches on suffering as a grace gift. He could speak from experience. He walked a pretty long road of suffering himself, including a debilitating illness, many years not being able to find work. But the pinnacle of his family's suffering was when his wife gave birth to their twins, and they died at birth. So Dr. Harris knew unparalleled suffering. And such suffering is not good. I mean, that is evil. And we don't rejoice in the suffering. It's the result of an evil, sin-cursed world. And God is not the doer of that evil. But Dr. Harris, thankfully, rightly responded to his suffering, not by walking away from Christ, but by walking closer with Christ. And through his word, the Lord gave him profound encouragement and comfort in knowing some of God's intentions in our suffering, in letting us suffer. For as we've said, as Dr. Harris said, as scripture says, God is is working all things out for a greater good and a greater glory. And the more you understand these greater purposes, the more comfort you will have. So last week, after explaining the text, we started to get into five ways God intends our suffering as a gracious gift. Five ways God intends our suffering as a grace gift. How does God bring about the good through the bad? Where does the glory emerge from all the evil in the world? If we can just see and get our hands on some of the good purposes God brings about through our sufferings, then maybe we can digest this verse a little bit better. And although these truths may not be easy to swallow for some, especially for those who still have some raw wounds from their suffering, Still, you need to know this, that you might, like, like Paul, like the Philippians, like countless others, that you might endure your own sufferings, even grow stronger through them, and that you might not, like some others, fall away when the persecution comes. Well, last time, we only made it through the first the way God brings about good through our suffering. Number one, suffering brings Christlikeness. Suffering Brings Christlikeness. We won't spend too much time on recap here, but I will say, if you weren't here last week and it piques your interest, get on the website, download the sermon. We covered a lot of foundational material, and we found that the primary way God intends our suffering as a grace gift is to bring about our Christlikeness. Suffering Brings Christlikeness, and we live very distracted lives Claiming to live for Christ alone, but in reality, preoccupied by many other things. But suffering has a way of changing that. Like a chisel, God will use suffering as a tool in his hand just to, to chip away everything that, that doesn't matter, that doesn't belong, conforming us, leaving behind the image of Christ. Those who suffer find, for instance, that their prayer lives are transformed. They're now praying from the heart, praying like they mean it, praying as if God is their only hope. Of course, it should always be that way. And so we find God will readily use suffering sometimes if it gets us to pray like Jesus, to worship like Jesus, to trust God like Jesus, to to know God like Jesus. This is, as we learned, God's primary purpose for our lives, that we would be like Christ, that we'd be conformed into the image of Christ. God's goal in saving us is not that we would be happy or healthy or wealthy, although those aren't bad things, but God has bigger plans in mind. His goal is that we would be holy, that we would be made into the perfect image of Christ. This is God's purpose for our lives, and when you come to follow Christ, it should become your purpose, your new purpose for your life as well. And that truth right there transforms how you suffer. We found, if you think about it, if God's purpose for our lives is to make us more like Christ, if our purpose for our lives is to be more like Christ, and if God uses suffering as a tool to make us more like Christ, well, then in a way, suffering can be a good thing, or at least it can turn out for good. I mean, just think if following Christ really is your goal in life, well, then as suffering helps you progress in that goal, you could even see it as a grace gift. Indeed, that's how God intends it. From his hands, God turns suffering into a gracious gift, using it at times like a fire to purify us, leaving behind someone more shaped into the image of Christ. And if Christ truly is your life's treasure, as he was Paul, for example, then you can even come to thank God when suffering comes into your life. Not for the suffering itself, but for the outcome of the fire, because you know that whatever passes through and comes out on the other side will be more like Christ. And that's a good thing. So first and foremost, how does God intend our sufferings, even as as a gracious gift, well, first, suffering brings Christ-likeness. Let's keep going now. We're going to finish and explore the other four ways now this morning. So number two, suffering brings assurance of salvation. Suffering brings assurance of salvation. Paul actually said this back in verse 28. If you have it open, look back at verse 28 of Philippians 1. He tells them to be, Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Speaking of their struggle for the faith and the persecution that comes with it, Paul says it's a sign of their salvation. The very fact that they were engaged in the struggle for the faith should assure them of their salvation. When you go fishing and you hook something, you don't really know what you have at first. could be a fish. could be a rock. Just could be, usually it's a rock. You're snagged on a rock. Now, how do you tell the difference? Well, does your line struggle? Does, does some struggle come from the end of the line? You see, a rock just sits there. It doesn't struggle. But a fish does because it's alive. It is struggling. And in a somewhat, <clears throat> somewhat similar fashion, True believers can be identified by struggling for the faith because they're alive. They they struggle for the faith. That's something false believers don't do. They're not going to tolerate too much suffering on account of the faith. Remember, the false believer in their heart of hearts still lives for self. Jesus is not truly Lord of their life. They they bought into Christianity for some reason, some cultural reason, some perceived benefit to self. But they haven't truly bowed the knee to Christ as Lord submitted their entire lives for him. So they're not not ready to to really suffer for him or or die for him. And when that threat comes, the threat of, of suffering, of discomfort, of even death, that they're out of there. I mentioned several times in the previous sermons the parable of the soils. So you should be familiar by now with the seed sown on the rocky places that Jesus taught, which immediately sprang up. But when the sun beat down on it, it it was scorched and it withered away because it had no root. And Jesus goes on to later explain that this represents a false believer who immediately springs up with joy. But when affliction or persecution comes on account of the word, immediately falls away. But just in reflecting on that parable, what caused the plant to wither? It was the sun which represents affliction, of course. It was the sun. The heat of the sun beat down on that plant, and it couldn't take it. Why? Well, because it was not in good soil. It was not genuine. But when you think about it, didn't the same sun beat down on the other plants, the plants in the good soil? They had the same sun shine on them as well and beat down on them as well. But they endured the sun's heat. Why? It was simply because they were planted in good good soil they could take it which is to say they were genuine believers but don't take this fact for granted as you suffer for christ and endure as you don't fall away you have a sign of your own salvation that's what paul said in our verse as well and keep in mind the seed doesn't know which soil it's in the only way to tell is by the result so as you feel the heat of affliction and endure, you see the fruit of endurance, where well, you can be encouraged and assured, you're the seed planted in good soil. You're enduring. And such assurance is a gift from God. I mean, we're talking about here how God can intend our sufferings as a gracious gift. If that's true, there has to be some way we can, where we are benefiting from suffering. Well, for the Christian... The assurance of salvation, that's a benefit. That's an extremely valuable commodity. I mean, have you ever known someone without the assurance of their salvation? They're, They're miserable. The Christian life, it's hard enough. What makes it worth it is the immense peace and joy and love we get to experience right now in our salvation. But the Christian without assurance doesn't get to experience that peace, joy, and love. They're, they're too filled with doubt and worry and fear. at least, a depression. It is a terrible way to live, certainly not what the Lord intended for his people. Maybe you've been there. <clears throat> Without getting into a full study on assurance, though, at the very least, if you are persecuted for the faith and you stand, you take it, you endure, well, be assured. Be assured in your salvation. 1 Peter affirms this outcome of assurance. I'll read for you 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says to them, In this salvation you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by, by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory And honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The assurance of salvation, the proof of your faith. Peter says it's more precious and valuable than gold. And this precious commodity comes sometimes, he says, by way of various trials, by by suffering. Christians often wonder how do I know that I'm really saved? How do I know that my faith is real? And it's not wrong to ask that question. That's good. It's a good question to ask. You should ask and hopefully be affirmed in your faith. But there's several ways to answer. One way is by fire. Has your faith been fire tested? And if so, did it survive? Well, if so, you have assurance your faith is proved. And there are a few better tests for your faith out there. So in a very real sense, you can say that as you suffer for Christ's sake, And endure. God is actually giving you a gift more valuable than gold. You have the assurance of your salvation. Peter says, the proof of your faith, more precious than gold. This is a gracious gift indeed. You know, the times when you should really be concerned is when you you are never persecuted for the faith. Even in America, which, granted, historically has been friendlier to Christians, so there's just less persecution in general here. But still, the darkness pervades. So if you if you go through life and you never face that opposition for, for following Christ, you never get any heat for being a disciple of Christ, that should be more troubling because then you have to question, well, why not? Are you perhaps not really walking in the light? Or maybe those living in the darkness, they're comfortable with you around because you're you're straddling the darkness as well. Jesus said, if you walk in the light, if you live in the light, the darkness, they're going to hate you. Maybe you take your light and you put it in a basket when you're around unbelievers so that no one really knows you're a Christian when you leave the house. It's a safe way to avoid persecution. And sure, it is a safe way to avoid persecution, but you just might be forfeiting the assurance of your salvation. Better yet, be a true disciple who lets his or her light shine. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. If you're made to suffer for it, well, so be it. At least you'll gain the assurance of your salvation, the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of god and such suffering brings secondly the assurance of salvation number three suffering brings eternal glory number three suffering brings eternal glory not to suggest that by suffering you're, you're earning glory in heaven we know that we inherit eternal life simply and purely by god's grace but as we've said many times simply by god's design only those who suffer are later glorified. You don't make it to the top of the mountain without without striving first. This was true of Christ and all of his disciples. I mean, if God wanted, he could kill us at the split second of our salvation and just instantly take us to glory without any suffering on earth. But God is pleased to leave us here in the flesh whereby we endure. Like Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Ours is therefore a necessary suffering. But scripture often encourages us in our endurance by pointing forward to the glory to come. God's word even goes so far as making a connection between our present suffering and that future glory. Do you know that? That the scripture makes a connection between our our present suffering and that future glory. And what's the connection? Well, the connection comes in Scripture by way of contrast. Here's a verse. I know you're familiar with it. Romans 8, verse 16 and following. Paul says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. First notice how Paul again connects our assurance with our suffering. We're, we're children indeed if we suffer with them. But then he says next, Romans, 8, 8, 18, or rather eight, verse eighteen. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I know you've heard this verse before, but maybe you've taken it for granted. But really think about it. What is heaven like? What does everlasting glory really look like? What does What's immeasurable glory going to be like for us? We don't really know. God has actually only given us a relatively limited perspective on eternal glory in heaven. The Bible only says so much. What does immeasurable glory really look like for us? We We, we can't fully conceive of it. However... God gives us a taste of what's to come by way of contrast. Think of all your earthly sufferings, your your whole life put together. That's obviously not glory, that's pain, but but you know it well, you're familiar with it. You feel it, and it feels really big in the moment. It's consuming. It's like a boulder crushing you, like a a house-sized boulder crushing you. You can barely breathe under it. But just consider, in contrast... The glory that's to come, it's like a planet. And there's just no comparison between the boulder and a planet. And you may not know what the planet really looks like right now, but you know that the glory to come, it's going to be immense. Whatever it is, it's going to be immense. And it's going to overshadow whatever you're going through right now. And that thought is given by way of contrast to encourage us to simply persevere and to endure. For in comparison, the sufferings of, pres- of the present can be called small. Your boulder of pain in life can be described as light. Isn't that what Paul says over in 2 Corinthians four seventeen? He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension or rather comparison. Again, this is how Paul describes the sum total of our suffering in life. He calls it momentary light affliction. In time compared to eternity, our suffering is momentary. In magnitude compared to eternity, our suffering is light. Remember, this is coming from the Apostle Paul who was beaten to a pulp several times for following Christ. In fact, in that same book, a few chapters later, Paul would go on to recollect how he was... Imprisoned, beaten, lashed, stoned, robbed, starved, impoverished, and shipwrecked, all for following Christ. And to us, that doesn't sound momentary or light. But next to the eternal weight of glory, there, there's no comparison. He says it's far beyond comparison. And the whole point of this contrast is to give us encouragement to endure. We have something to look forward to, we have eternal glory to look forward to. And although we, we don't fully know what that is going to look like, we know it will overshadow everything we're going through right now. And that is given to encourage us to press on, to hold on, to hold fast as we sang this morning, as the Lord holds fast to us. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. We don't know what that rain will look like, but it will be good. So simply endure. The glory comes to those who endure. Suffering brings eternal glory. Well, a couple more to go through here. A couple more ways God can transform our suffering into a gracious gift. Number four, suffering brings people to God. Suffering brings people to God. Here we find one of the major purposes of, in our suffering that extends outside of ourselves. Not only is God graciously working through our sufferings to, in the end, benefit us, but he's also working through our sufferings to, to benefit other people. That That's that's a good thing. I mean, just think, if you contracted some rare disease and it just came with intense pain, aches and pains throughout your whole body, the doctors treat you, they're like, we don't really know what it is. It's a mystery disease. can't really do anything for you. <clears throat> But they ask you if they could study you further. They can't help you, but maybe in the future they can help other people. Would you let them study you? You you probably would. Why? Well, you're going to suffer that pain one way or another. At least you'll derive a little comfort knowing that your suffering might help other people later on. And similarly, if God brings just one person to salvation through your suffering, whatever you might be going through, wouldn't that give you just a little measure of, of comfort, of encouragement? And in fact, that's an eternal impact. That's someone's eternity being changed, potentially God using your suffering. That's that's a good thing. If you remember earlier in Philippians 1, Paul was trying to encourage the Philippians with this very point. You may recall the Philippians, they heard Paul was in prison and they became very worried. They thought, Is his ministry over? This this could be the end of of Paul's ministry. This This is a bad thing. But Paul writes to tell them that despite his sufferings, God was still working. How so? Look back at Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Quick break to blow the nose. Okay. What were Paul's circumstances? Verse 12. Well, false charges, harsh treatment, imprisonment, the threat of death. He had stuck his neck out for Christ and now he was risking getting his neck cut off. Literally, he was in prison to waiting to stand trial before Nero and he could have been beheaded. Later, he he would be. Still, though, how did God turn those circumstances into good? Well, by making Paul's suffering turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. In short, believers were sanctified. Unbelievers were saved. Through Paul's time in prison. We actually learned earlier in Philippians 1 that many people in Caesar's own household had come to faith through Paul's time there. And it's amazing when you think about it. If Paul had if he'd never been imprisoned, if he had never gone through all that suffering, those people would never have heard the gospel. And of course, humanly speaking, they never would have been saved. Paul never would have had such access to Caesar's household otherwise. But God had Paul right where he wanted him, even if that meant some suffering for his good purposes, which included drawing some people to eternal salvation, even within Caesar's own household. This is how God at times intends our sufferings as a grace gift to bring others to God. I mentioned the emperor Nero earlier. He was the first Roman emperor to initiate major persecutions against the Christians. And before Constantine, there would be 10 major persecutions, taking the lives of tens of thousands of Christians, maybe even more. A bit later came the Emperor Hadrian from 117 to 138 AD. I find this time really interesting because by this time, the early church was living by the same faith as you and I, meaning... By this time, all the apostles and prophets were dead and gone. There were no more living eyewitnesses to Christ by the time of Emperor Hadrian. They're, they're all dead. No one alive had seen Jesus. So they, they were living with just by that unseen faith. No one had seen him at that point. And so it makes us wonder what would happen to this very young early church living off of pure faith now. Would they endure? Hadrian continued severe persecutions against the Christians. It's estimated that in his reign alone, 10,000 Christians were killed. One of them was named Eustachius. Eustachius was a successful Roman commander, and he was ordered to join into an idolatrous sacrifice celebrating his own victory, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us, but his Christian faith would not allow him. And he says that Emperor Hadrian was so enraged that he wouldn't join in, that he had him and his whole family killed despite his service to rome he had them all killed near the same time there were also two brothers fossines and jovita they were being tortured for their faith in jesus but they endured their tortures with such grace and peace that a pagan named calisarius he was just struck and he was moved to cry out great is the god of the christians And for this, he was immediately arrested and made to join the two of them being tortured. Stories like this, they're commonplace in the early church. It makes you wonder, how did the early church survive? How did they make disciples? Who would sign up to follow Jesus if this is what you get? There's no human answer for that. There's no human explanation for the early church in in the midst of such intense persecution for roughly 300 years. But... God was at work and God was drawing people to himself. And he often did so through the intense suffering of other people. That's how God works at times. Is this not how God worked ultimately through his own son and through the the infinite sufferings of his own son? God, through that, draws many to salvation. God still works like this today. So be encouraged and stand firm. If you are made to suffer for Christ, well, no, God may use it to draw others to salvation. Even when you can't see it, even when you don't see it, you have to learn to trust God. God knows what he's doing. He's working it out for his good, his glory. Your life, your sufferings may have no impact for years to come. You may never see it, but you just need to trust your infinitely wise and supreme God, knowing He works for good because he is good. And that's enough to trust him and to persevere. Through suffering, God often brings people to himself. Lastly, number five, suffering brings glory to God. Suffering brings glory to God. Not trying to suggest here that God revels or delights when bad things happen to his children. No. Again, we everywhere affirm suffering itself is evil. And remember, there will be no sin or suffering in God's kingdom. However, as we face suffering in this life, especially for the faith, and as we rightly respond, God is glorified. He is magnified and pleased to see his children endure such difficult and harsh treatment simply for their allegiance to his son. That brings God great honor. Just think back to the feudal kings of the Middle Ages, they're all at war with one another, all these city-states. Imagine that before a battle, all the soldiers, they flee and they abandon their king alone on the battlefield. Think of the shame and the dishonor that would bring the king. Or, or on the flip side, what if all the soldiers, they fought valiantly. They even gave their lives purely for their king. That would bring the king immense glory. And thankfully, we don't live under such a feudal system because no human king is worth all that glory. But Christ is. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we face whatever battle for his name's sake and we just stand firm, we don't run away, he is, he's glorified. And this in turn should please us because remember, this king first gave his life for us. He first died and suffered for us. It should be our delight now to lay down our lives for his name's sake. Just think again of the Apostle Paul, who's writing Philippians. I'm sure you remember his life before coming to Christ. He was a zealous Jew. He was the number one persecutor of Christians. Remember? He made countless Christians suffer for their faith. We also probably remember the circumstances of his conversion, the Lord met him on the road to Damascus and, and and converted him instantly. But do you remember Christ's commission for Paul when he met him? I'll read for you Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, speaking of Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much He must suffer for my name's sake. That's Jesus talking. Paul was his chosen instrument, designed, planned, prepared to suffer immensely for Christ's name's sake. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Realize the purpose of our lives is to be like Christ, who himself lived to glorify God We're merely instruments in the Redeemer's hands to be used as he sees fit for his glory. But also understand, no instrument is greatly used without suffering. And Paul himself, he would go on to suffer profoundly for the Lord's sake. It simply comes with the territory of being a chosen instrument. But what you need to realize is if if you're in Christ by faith, that's you too. You are a chosen instrument. Christ has the same gift to give you, the gift of suffering for his name's sake. Now, you may be large, you may be small as a chosen instrument. We all have different roles, that's fine. But the question is, are you willing to be used by him, to live for him? Do you desire to bring glory to him? And if so, you need to understand and even accept that at times this means affliction, persecution, suffering as a chosen instrument but hopefully through our time together you now better understand god's many purposes in that suffering it's not good but he can make it good and as you embrace that you find great comfort you can even see it as a grace gift from god for through the suffering he's bringing likeness he's bringing assurance of salvation he's bringing eternal glory He's bringing others to salvation and he's bringing glory to himself. There's actually more to be said here about how we respond to this suffering, our practical, detailed response when it comes our way. In fact, I think it's so important. We'll come back next week for one last message on the verse, on the topic, detailing our specific response to suffering when suffering comes. But I pray our time this morning It just changes your perspective on suffering overall. Suffering, it's not good, but it can still be a gift used for God's purposes. It can become good. It can become a grace gift. But only if you see and accept and embrace God's greater purposes in it and through it. And then when you do, the question remaining is, are are you willing to? to be used for God's purposes? Do you really live your life for the king? And I encourage you to be his instrument, remembering that only those who suffer with him will be glorified with him as well. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we we thank you and praise you this morning for your word and and revealing this truth to us. It, It is a meaty, significant truth in your word. The gift of suffering, how can it be? Lord, we find this morning it can be simply because you have greater purposes. You displayed that on the cross through the greatest suffering in history of Christ enduring your wrath. Lord, you brought about the greatest good in history, the salvation of of countless and your glory. Lord, we don't always see it. We are often clouded by our own lives, we can only think of our own lives and our own pain. I pray, Lord, still you comfort us when we suffer and remind us of these truths that we can see the bigger picture and as we see your grander purposes, we find this, this supernatural comfort and peace that comes knowing we're simply being used by you for your glory and that, that's a good thing. That's our purpose. That, that should be our joy, Lord. I pray you open us up to this. You mature us to understand this that we can suffer as Christ, righteously, even drawing others to yourself. Lord, we simply need to confess you're good, you're powerful, you're in control, you're wise, you, you know what you're doing, and so we trust you. Build us in that trust and bless us in that trust for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray, amen.